Great things are done when men and mountains meet. This is not done by jostling in the street. William Blake Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I would like to thank everyone who's been continuing to listen and who has listened, uh, you know, for those who have listened a while and for those who are maybe just joining us now. Uh, So last week's episode, I had some really good feedback in response to that, and I do want to thank everyone. I do apologize again for it being out late. Um, but it did have a couple of, um, pieces of feedback that I wanted to follow up with, and as well as something that I think I forgot to mention when I went over the recording. Uh, first, I think I neglected to mention that Cyprus has possibly the oldest evidence of domesticated cats. I went into that in a lot more detail in our animal domestication episode, uh, but I meant to mention it again and bring it back up. Um, who knows, maybe that's what they were uh, trading for obsidian. Maybe they had cornered the market on uh, cats. Um, the other thing I want to mention was something that I should have been a little bit more clear on. And I would like to thank a couple of my listeners for, for asking about it so I can clarify and just expand on and explain. So these episodes run from 8,000 to about 6,000 BC. And while I have been focusing on groups associated with the uh, pre-pottery Neolithic, um, pottery is beginning to be used at the end of this time frame, at the very end, in locations near the sites we have been and will be discussing. Which is just... um, Uh, So again, this is ending just before or right after 6000 BC. So groups that develop and use pottery are beginning to leave more traces on the archaeological record and then slowly become the more prominent groups of the region. Sites that exhibit this early pottery um, are usually referred to as Pottery Neolithic. Uh, and there is an overlap between the time frame um, and uh, the pre-pottery Neolithic B or pre-pottery Neolithic C, if some sites use that. Eventually, the pottery Neolithic will overtake the pre-pottery Neolithic in terms of number of uh, people. So much so that when we return to these sites and areas um at the 6,000 to either 4,500 or 4,000 BC. I'm not quite sure on the exact timeline yet. Um, Those episodes will focus more on groups using pottery because they will have become more distinct and identifiable in the record. So it is a confusing period where we're in now with with a bit of overlap, at least in the last, you know, four to 500 years. Um, now I thought about bringing these people up last time and maybe I should have with the feedback I got, but, um, I figured Cyprus kind of deserved its own episode, its own focus. Um, but now in the Southern Levant, we focused primarily on Jericho, uh, but there were a few other smaller sites in the same region that share a certain level of continuity or maybe, maybe even cohesion, um, with Jericho 
the site at Jericho. Sites like Ain Gazal and Tel Aswad each share a certain level of similarity with Jericho. At times, they were all co-occupied. Um, Ein Gazelle has lime and plaster statuary and figurines of humans and some animals like Jericho did, but even more have been recovered from Ein Gazelle than even at Jericho, though Ein Gazelle was nowhere quite as big, at least in terms of population. Uh, both had plastered skulls, like Jericho did during the PPMB period, um, though I think I should point out that though there is some level of overlap between these sites, they when they were cohabited at the same time, they were not all lived in during the exact same time periods. Uh, Tel Aswad was not lived in at least on a semi-permanent or permanent basis during the pre-pottery Neolithic period, the A period, excuse me, the pre-pottery Neolithic, pre-pottery Neolithic A period. Um, they also each had their own slight differences or innovations. Um, Tel Aswad, like Jericho, had walls, but unlike Jericho, their walls were not made of stone, but layered levels of compressed soil and reeds. Um, this hints at some factors that will come up when I do our urbanization special, but uh, just think of these as more earthworks than stoneworks. Um, the stone walls at Jericho were were made from stone. Um, for now, though, I need to finish this area by talking about uh, the invention of pottery, which happens around 6400 BC, give or take 100 years. Um, this takes place in a relatively small area. It happens around the Sea of Galilee, somewhere in the border regions of Israel, Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, this pottery and its creators are called Yarmoukian. Uh, this name comes from the Yarmouk River, which is the largest tributary of the Jordan River. Uh, they have a number of small settlements, um, not more than a town or maybe even a village. Um, the pottery is simple. Uh, some of them have little uh, ring uh, holes around the lips, I guess, to maybe help pour um, or maybe tie a rope through to help carry, you know, a large number. Um, uh, but I didn't notice that on any of the things they've recovered that they have any kind of special molded mouths. They're literally just circular. Um, they're also lightly decorated with lines and kind of arrows um, literally just, you know, straight lines, uh, kind of parallel to each other. And in those parallel lines, they will have, you know, uh, just the tops of triangles made from two lines kind of incised inward to each other. So kind of making very rudimentary arrows. Um, and I didn't see that any of these at least any of the ones that have been recovered, they didn't have any kind of overt human or animal figures. It's almost entirely geometric uh, shapes. Nothing, uh, nothing human or animal. Um, this pottery and culture disappeared after around 400 years. So right at the 6,000 BC mark. It's possible they only made you know pottery for 100 or so years before you know they kind of 
joined up with other groups or other groups kind of took their invention and ran with it. Um, now, there is another potential culture to the south of pre-Pottery Neolithic B. Jericho and the Yarmukian territory that used pottery, and it is called Niz- uh, excuse me, Nizanim. Uh, there are only a couple of sites that have been, t- you know, kind of tentatively tied to this group, um, only around three or so. Uh, the time frame they existed in is up for debate. Only one of their sites was able to come up with radiocarbon dating, and that was in the mid 5000s BC, so like five, you know, 5500, 5600. Uh, and this put it later than what the archaeologist who had discovered and examined these sites had dated them to. They had thought them contemporaries with the Yarmukian, um, but just the nature of their sites and the lack of stratigraphic clues make this very hard to prove. Uh, this group was very nomadic. It did not have nearly as many sedentary or semi-sedentary uh, sites to study. Um, there's also some politics involved that I'm not going to get into, um, but I think it's more to fair to say that this group probably didn't exist as a cohesive unit until later, uh, if they existed at all. But I'll cover more of them in the next set of episodes on this region. Now, we're going to continue to do uh, a little bit of moving up to the north. Um, There is a gap in sedentary locations in the Levant. Uh, Once you move past... um, uh, kind of where the Yermukian culture is located and Jericho is located, you get kind of a uh, a dead space. Although that's not a that's not a good term. It's not so much a dead space. It's just a space where there are no long term sites, uh, or at least we've not discovered any long term sites. This area is kind of one of those ectones we've talked about. Um, it kind of passes through the uh, what are the anti-Lebanon mountains or the eastern mountains of Lebanon which is what that literally means Um, so there's kind of a a space where you know you have those ectones where you have these different geographic regions meeting together you have these cedar forests up and down the coast of Lebanon that people aren't necessarily trying to establish permanent settlements in. They're just kind of moving through them seasonally. Excuse me. Sorry for that notification. So this is um, this is a region that is not kind of one of those experimental regions, probably because they don't really have the best environment for the kind of agriculture that people are currently practicing. And so you'll have this, you see this kind of um, un, uh, unurbanized area uh, from what is Tel Assad, which is kind of to the north and slightly to the west of Jericho. That's kind of the last of the uh, proto-cities in the region. And then you basically have this uh, verdant wild landscape stretching uh, 
in a curve all the way to uh, the Euphrates River, where you begin to see a number of sites in that region. And then from there, you have sites to the north in what are Anatolia, and then you have sites either further to the, um, the east past the Tigris, and then you have you know, some locations in kind of the um, uh, Zagros Mountain area. You also have a few outlier sites to the west in Anatolia along the coast, um, and we're going to talk about a few of those uh, here in the next couple of episodes. Um, but the big sites that you would find along the Euphrates are Abu Huraira, uh, Tel Muriabit, and a couple of other smaller ones. Um, but I think the big one that we should focus on for this episode is Abu Huraira. Now, when I mentioned the Natufian a few episodes ago and how a couple of their sites had been flooded, uh, that would be Abu Huraira and Muriabit. Uh, these were flooded, I believe, in the 70s after the construction of the, um, of the Aswad Dam, I believe is what it's called. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's the, it's the Topka Dam, but it created Lake Assad. Um, this was part of kind of a modernization and agricultural project of um, Hafez al-Assad, who is the father, of course, of uh, Bashir al-Assad, the current uh, dictator of Syria. Um, and during, uh, basically, in the run-up to this flooding happening, because, you know, they knew that this would happen once the dam was finished construction, um, a kind of an emergency excavation was done in the region. Um, a large number of artifacts were kind of cataloged and, um, you know, excavated and dug up and then transported for future study. Uh, so this has happened um, over quite a period, uh, over 20-some-odd years uh, that this um, kind of analyst hap analysis happened and... Um, you know, study of the artifacts. Uh, so it's unfortunate. Uh, who knows, there could have been things missed, but um, from what we have been able to save and gather, um, Abu, was, Abu Huraira was very similar to um, Tel Es-Sultan, or the ancient Jericho site. It had been inhabited, you know, by uh, this kind of early pre-pottery group uh, that were mostly hunter-gatherers, um, they would mostly eat wild gazelle and deer, and then they would supplement, of course, you know, their, uh, their diet with, you know, random odds and ends of wild plants in the area. Um, there's a period of dryness that happens during what is, you know, the younger dryest period, and that probably affected, um, the wild plants because it was a little bit drier so that probably led them to practice some form of cultivation and trying to get uh plant these uh crops in fact there's there are some theories that hold that abu Huraira may have been one of the first sites that this was attempted at um but like jericho it does have uh, a period 
a transitional period where it is not uh, occupied. Uh, there are those that think that the the bulk of the population that was living here moved to uh, Morayabit, which is a little bit to the north and east of um, Abu Huraira. Uh, and that site seems to have a larger population while this site loses it. So there's, there's about a, f- a thousand to a fifteen hundred year period where the site is virtually abandoned. So you go from this hunter-gatherer pre-pottery Neolithic A site where there is a lot of um, more wild food sources and then you have this switch to a domesticated uh, site around 7,000 or so BC, BCE. Uh, this site holds a large number of, um, of domesticated uh, crop sources that they've been able to find, or I say large number. Um, there were more domesticated strains than wild strains. We'll put it that way. Um, wild grasses, uh, einkorn, emmer, uh, those make up the bulk. But there is also about uh, probably about 15, 20% of lentils as well. So, you know, they have a fairly, you know, fairly diverse plant diet, if nothing else. And, of course, they're probably, be- excuse me, they're probably beginning to rely on uh, domesticated animals more as well, though I couldn't get the breakdown of bones at the site the way I could at Jericho. Uh, but Abu Huraira is kind of um, kind of a very interesting case because it was um, while they were doing the excavation, they did like a kind of experimental digging process to find these plants that they were able to study. This has led some to kind of you know, kind of be a little skeptical of some of the claims uh, of that this was like one of the first areas that they were practicing agriculture. But, you know, it's it's very slight disagreement. They're just saying that, you know, they're basically overstating the importance of the site. Uh, but there is no denying that it is a very old site for agricultural practice. The, they just, they don't believe the evidence proves that it is the first. So, unfortunately, due to uh, the nature of the area and it now being underwater, it's kind of hard to, you know, prove that anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, say what you want, uh, the area did need a, a big jolt in agriculture just due to the modern day environment. Um, and the, you know, the water was desperately needed in Syria. Uh, whatever else your opinion of the Assad family, that is something that, you know, probably needed to be done for them to be able to support uh, their population. Um, Of course, other issues came about from that, but uh, we'll get into that stuff well, well into the future. Uh, But, um, so yeah, you have a, about a 1300 year period where Abu Huraira was pretty much abandoned. Uh, I'm sure it was still used as kind of a um, a camping spot. It had been used that way, you know, long before anyone even thought of doing settled uh, sedentary life. Um, and it's just a it's kind of a good place. It's up on a mount overlooking this or uh, kind of this plateau overlooking the Euphrates, so you'd have a good view of the area. Um, relatively 
uh, you know, even terrain at that elevation. So, you know, it, it, it was a good spot. Uh, but um, during the kind of uh, younger driest period where it was a lot drier, uh, it's thought that due to the lack of uh, natural rainfall, people started caring more for crops that they themselves had planted because it, it needed it more. So it was probably a low, kind of a low scale agriculture. Um, I could not get, uh, you know, kind of an estimate of how large this site was, um, but it was not nearly as large as Jericho, um, at least in terms of population. Um, uh, let's see, it's about 75 miles east of modern day Aleppo, or it was, I should say. Um, so it's it's not far off from um, you know the modern capital of the the area. In fact, it's been a capital for quite a while. So you know it's in the grand scheme of things, it's very close. It's very central. Um, when you get to more organized states, um, it's a good location. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, you know. Uh, I think just due to the size of the plateau it's on, it probably couldn't support too large of a population. That's probably why in the future bigger sites were a little bit more to um, a little bit more to the west. Um, despite the fact that you know you're on the Euphrates, I think just due to the nature of the river itself, um, it was probably not the most um, the most stable. Uh, region environmentally to place a capital, which is again probably why you see the capital of the region kind of centered a little bit more to uh, its its west. Um, but there are, there are a number of factors for that, and we'll we'll get into that in future when we kind of go through, um, I guess the centralization of uh, cities and the region and power and all that kind of good stuff when it comes to states. Uh, let's see. So that's the highlights kind of of Abu Huraira. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, its sister site, uh, Murayabit. Murayabit was probably in the kind of same seasonal rotation and occupation, uh, by hunter-gatherer groups, specifically the Natufian, um, they again the population rose in the area after uh, the abandonment or semi-abandonment of Abu Huraira, um, and it was kind of it, but it was occupied permanently or a semi-permanent basis slightly before then. Uh, so it's probably that the populations at Abu Huraira were probably a little too large for what kind of resources they were looking at. So they may have split and then, you know, they would kind of, you know, travel back and forth, uh, as needed. Uh, but Merabit is also kind of affected by the lake being, uh, formed due to the dam. Uh, so it was also likewise kind of speedily excavated. Um, but from what they could tell, it looks like, Ab um, Merabit, excuse me, had been abandoned fully by about 8,000 BC. 
Um, but at that period, they did find, you know, these evidences of um, domesticated animals, uh, at the very least, uh, you know, a decent number of them, not as much as, of course, as they were still eating wild animals uh, or wild deer and things like that. But they did have that to kind of supplement. And then it appears that this site is abandoned completely at that point, and perhaps they either all move into Abu Huraira or they set up a different site um, nearby Abu Huraira, and that kind of becomes uh, the new secondary location for these uh, people. Now, um, there are a couple of other sites that are in modern Syria. They're a little bit smaller. Um, but most of the ones dating to this period are in and around this general area. Um, you have, uh, you know, the Euphrates is nearby, but you also have mountains and even a plain. Uh, there is a little small plain that's kind of bounded by the, the Taurus Mountains to the north and the Lebanese Mountains to the south and east. Um, but you do have this plain, uh, and then that, that is bounded by the Euphrates to its east. So it was probably a decent place for um, these early uh, herders, if nothing else. Uh, probably not the best place to practice agriculture um, just yet. Uh, they still are developing techniques. That's probably why you don't see um, quite the numbers that you would have at Jericho or some other places. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what we have in modern day Syria. Now, next time, and I think this is a good place to call, call this episode, we're going to start talking about um, the sites in Anatolia and how they might have been related to these sites in Syria, uh, the sites further south, as well as two sites that we're going to cover uh, to the east uh, in the future. But there are a number of sites in the southern Anatolia, um, specifically Gobekli Tepe, uh, Katahoyuk, uh, uh, Karahan Tepe. Uh, there, there are a few, and um, this is probably going to be an episode or two just on them. Um, we're going to talk a lot about um, kind of possible religious or cultural institutions that are developing uh, and kind of break down what these sites may have been used for because it's not 100% that all of these sites were used as a residence. They could have been ceremonial centers, something that is, you know, not necessarily the precursor of a temple or a temple complex, but it could have been. And um, as we'll see, a lot of cities in the future will uh, develop around uh, temple complexes uh, or become homes to gods for specific uh, groups. And again, we'll go all into that a little bit more detail later, but first we're going to deal with these um, groups at um, or in uh, Anatolia. Um, 
I could not find any information about the uh, possible religious practices at Abu Huraira and at uh, Merebit. Uh, they might have been kind of uh, abandoned a little too soon. I think there are, of course, like stone, like um, uh, vases or you know, um, not vases, but just stone containers. And I know they had baskets and things like that. But I didn't, I could not find any kind of sources on any kind of cultural artifacts they had. They, they did have jewelry. They had seashell jewelry, things like that. But I didn't see anything about any kind of possible religious figures. Um, but I think there is a general opinion that it's very similar to what you would find at um, Jericho. At least that's the theory. I'll get in to that a little bit more next week but there's not an overt kind of symbol or uh you know potential symbols uh i guess the case may be but uh we'll get it we'll dive into that a little bit more next week um for now though i hope you've enjoyed this episode um next week's episode should be out regularly uh i Next weekend is a long weekend here in the U.S. It is Martin Luther King Day, or at least it is for me. I know not everyone gets that day off, but my goal is to have the episode recorded and uploaded at the regular time. Um, but it may be the next day. I doubt it, but just in case. I'm going to give myself a little bit of leeway. Um, but I hope you enjoyed. If you have any feedback, please email me at waratrevpod at gmail.com. I do love hearing from people. You can also direct message me at uh, Twitter, which I will include my Twitter uh, link in the episode description. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, yeah, thank you again. And I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye.